0: Hey, what up, hello everybody? Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. And it's Friday, September 29th. Tomorrow, last day of September. We're moving into October. I'm here for it. I I enjoy it. Got back from a run. It is windy and gray, and I like that too. I, I don't know. This time of year, I kind of enjoy having to be inside and just it's kind of getting cooler and stuff. I mean, it's not really cool still. It's like 63 out. But, anyways, things are changing. But. Today, I want to talk about a mix of different things, including Trump's fake pro-workers rally that he went on, where the media made it sound like he was going to a pro-union factory in Michigan. Instead, he goes to a non-union factory in Michigan, and the media made it kind of, it's just a mess. We'll talk about it. I also want to talk about how we're edging towards a government shutdown, and Senator Dianne Feinstein did die today at the age of 90. Historic career, horrible ending. I have a lot of questions for her family and allies and why they protected her for so long when I think she should have been enjoying her final months with family, but we'll get to that later. But first, I do want to talk about the shutdown. And The Economist notes in today's daily briefing, hard-right Republicans in America's House of Representatives voted down a last-ditch stopgap funding bill sponsored by their own party aimed at preventing a government shutdown on October 1st. By the way... (laughs) This is just, this sums it up all right here. A bill sponsored by their own party to try to make sure the government doesn't shut down and you have the far right, Freedom Caucus, nutbags, bomb throwing, and they don't care. They, these guys clearly don't care if the Republicans are in the majority in the House. They don't care if it looks bad for the Republican Party. Trump wants them to be bomb throwers. They're going to be bomb throwers. They obviously do not care about the American people getting benefits. And it's pretty bad when their own party is stopping their own party from passing a bill. And I will admit there is a sense of schadenfreude in my head watching this all happen to Kevin McCarthy, who again sold his soul to become Speaker of the House. And now it's chaos. He's miserable. There's reports of F-bombs and verbal fights between him and his other members. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy is what I would say. But anyways, The Economist continues. They are demanding... Swinging cuts to America's discretionary spending. The defeat is another blow to Kevin McCarthy, the beleaguered Speaker of the House. Now, just to put this into perspective, here's a few things that would happen on October 1st if this doesn't happen. By the way, October 1st is Monday. I know every time there's the potential for a shutdown, everyone's overreacts, says it's going to happen, and then they reach a deal at the 11th hour. From everything I'm seeing, this seems like one of the cases where there actually could be a shutdown because Kevin McCarthy's a horrible leader. He's not the brightest bulb in the shed, and he's dealing with crazies and the pressure of Trump. It's even gotten to the point where Mitch McConnell and the and the Senate Republicans are talking with Democrats on how to fix this. Back back in May, when this was first looming. Kevin McCarthy was actually working with Mitch McConnell, but this time around, it looks like Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans are just like, screw this, we're not going to even work with these people because they're not serious, and we're going to work with Democrats to try to stop the government from shutting down. So it's a nightmare for the House Republicans, but basically on the first week of this shutdown, about 10,000 low-income children would immediately lose access to Head Start programs, which are quite important for development, especially when the resources are lacking, Transportation and construction around cities and on roads would uh, stop across the country. Now, I joked to a friend earlier, I'm like, maybe this would be good for my commute to work because Caltrans wouldn't be able to work on the roads that cause all the traffic in the morning. But, you know, obviously our infrastructure is not exactly in great shape, so we don't want infrastructure spending to stop either. Also, SNAP, which is the food stamp program, SNAP funding would be uncertain after October 1st not good for low income families that need to eat, right? People like food, food's important. So that would be a bad one as well. And this one, because I'm kind of a, I'm kind of health anxious about my food. The FDA would uh, not be able to inspect as well. So the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration would see food inspections getting disrupted. So that's always good. Isn't that nice to hear? Like maybe that, uh, Foster Farms' chicken isn't going to be inspected quite as quickly, or there could be disruptions. Yeah, that's not what you want in a rich, somewhat stable society. And CNN also notes that during the last government shutdown in 2018-2019, an estimated 420,000 federal employees worked without pay, and another, 38, sorry, another 380,000 were furloughed. I should note, Social Security checks would still be dispersed, and it's not like... Law and order and justice and crime and all that stuff would be stopped, but it's not a place we want to be in. My my big grievance here is that Kevin McCarthy, right, Speaker, basically there was the agreement that they do have the ability to do a motion to vacate the chair where they can hold a vote and get him out with, I think, just a simple majority, and... Basically, this is a bluff right now by the crazies like Matt Gates because the motion to vacate is just not going to work, because there's really no one else to take Kevin McCarthy's job. Like, I don't see like Matt Gates getting it. I don't see Jim Jordan getting it. So, uh, Congressman Scalise, I think was the other one, but he has cancer now. And so I don't think he is obviously fit for that either. So look, McCarthy should call the bluff, work with Democrats and keep the government open. Obviously, he's already unpopular. They all hate him on both sides of the aisle. He might as well just do what needs to be done because right now, no one's winning, and it's not even really a game of chicken anymore. It's just a shit show. Now, before I move on to the next topic, I want to play... This happened earlier in the week. It was an interview on, what is it, Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Bartiromo, who has never seen a conspiracy theory she doesn't like. She gets into a back-and-forth with Matt Gates, who's on her show, And I think this highlights what's going on inside of the party right now. I will have to say that in this case, I found Matt Gaetz kind of funny and accurate when he calls his own caucus not serious. He attacks Kevin McCarthy. Maria Bartiromo doesn't seem too thrilled. It's a fun back and forth. Shows me that none of these people are serious. And you guys aren't seeing the video, but Matt Gaetz's hair just seems to get bigger as he gets crazier. So really an interesting dude. By interesting, I mean a POS, but we'll call him interesting to keep it uh, PG and friendly here.
1: Anyways, now here's joining the clip. us, one of the people holding up an agreement uh, to fund the government, Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates. Uh, Congressman, thank you very much for being here this morning. Well, thank you. I, I'm glad I get to respond to your monologue because if you're saying that I'm standing in the way of all the Republican wins, I'd love you to enumerate them. Watching my friend and mentor Jim Jordan, it was, it was quite painful because he's st- by the way,
0: whenever Jim Jordan is your friend and mentor, I have a lot of questions to be asked, but I won't, I won't stall on that for too long.
1: ...started by saying we should only pick one fight, the border. But then as the interview went on, he said, well, we should pick a second fight, Jack Smith. And by the time the interview rounded out, he was saying that we shouldn't be funding Ukraine without a plan. And yet the very continuing resolution that you and Jim Jordan seem to be for continues to have $300 million more for Ukraine. So I think we ought to fight on all fronts. I think the border is very important. And the best way for us to advance the Republican border policies is to pass the Department of Homeland Security appropriations bill. Do that along with veterans, defense, ag, state and foreign ops. We'll have 73% of the discretionary. Uh, budget funded. And if, you know, the Department of Labor and Education have to shut down for a few days as we get their appropriations in.
0: <laughs> Labor and education. Those are the two things you always want to shut down, right?
1: Uh, that's certainly not something that is is uh, optimal, but I think it's better than continuing on the current path we are to America's financial ruin. Congressman, I understand and that is why you are on this program this morning, because I want to give you a fair shot And I want to get you uh, heard. So tell me why you are threatening Speaker McCarthy and trying to shut down this government uh, at a time that the Republicans have finally gotten some upper hands here uh, in terms of wins able to investigate President Biden on what looks like uh, bribery. Yeah, We don't put our pencils down in the investigation of President Biden during a shutdown, so the premise is false. Second, if Kevin McCarthy was actually serious about pursuing the Bidens, he would have sent Hunter Biden a subpoena by now. That's how you know this is sort of failure theater that you're observing.
0: It's bad when I'm agreeing with Matt Gates, but it is failure theater. <laughs> but then again, his priorities in this are just all over the place. Jesus.
1: During the first year of Democrat control of the Congress, they brought in Donald Trump Jr. three times over nothing, over a nothing burger. And so we seem to be fundamentally unserious in our oversight. But what is serious is the fact that we are spending more than $7 trillion a year, bringing in around $5 trillion a year. And uh, I want to fund the government. I'm not pro-shutdown, but the way to fund the government, yes, not the same.
0: Yes, yes, he is definitely pro-shutdown, but anyways...
1: We've been doing it since the mid-90s, where it's one up or down vote on the entire government all at once. We should have separate, single-subject spending bills. Kevin McCarthy promised that in January. He is in breach of that promise. So I'm not here to hold the government hostage. I'm here to hold Kevin McCarthy to his word.
0: So, yeah, this is fun. Kevin McCarthy is definitely their punching bag. I bet his life is not great right now. I don't feel bad for him at all. And I am worried that we probably will see a shutdown. Um, I do think this this shut like if say there is a hypothetical shutdown, I think it's going to be so obvious that it's Republicans' fault here. I just don't see how you could blame Biden or anybody else on this. I know they will try, but at the end of the day, I think this will be a bad look for Republicans. Even Kevin McCarthy has told his members that, but he's a weak leader and he's kind of an idiot, so he can't even get them together to vote on anything. So fun times in the Republican House moving on (laughs) i want to talk about how trump went to a non-union event but pretended it was a union event and the media kind of caused some of this his own ability to create propaganda out of lies led to this as well it's just a complete mess so since the uaw strike started i think what like two weeks ago we've seen biden take a pretty strong stance in support for union workers Trump, on the other hand, kind of gave us a word salad, which made it sound like he's kind of pro-union, but then also not, and that actually EVs are bad, and it's Biden's clean climate agenda, working with China, 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 they're taking our jobs, that type of thing, and anyways, long story short, during the debate, which Trump didn't attend, I think he won for not attending because it was such a shit show, but Trump did a rally in Macomb County, Michigan, and I I have to add that during the lead-up to the rally and the days ahead of time, many people, including myself, thought that the event would be at a pro-union plant because that's where the conversation was. And this is because Trump had alluded to workers needing more pay, and he kind of understood the issues at hand here. And I thought it would be a good look for him to get there before Biden And really appeal to working union individuals. Well, he didn't. He went to a non-union plant. And the local Fox website out of Detroit has a pretty good article that kind of helps us paint this picture. It writes here in quotes, On the heels of President Biden's visit to the auto worker union picket lines will come former President Donald Trump, who is skipping the second Republican debate to speak to workers at a facility in Macomb County. Trump previously labeled his remarks as showing solidarity with the UAW workers on strike. However, he'll be giving his speech from a non-union auto parts plant at an event that is invite-only. Nothing says man of the people like a white-collar invite-only event at a factory that doesn't believe in union labor, right? That's, that is the fake faux populism that Trump always does. He says one thing and does completely the opposite, but... The article continues here in quotes, he's likely to get an icy reception from UAW uh, leadership as well. The union president spoke, that's Sean Fain, by the way, spoke with a national cable news Tuesday night, calling it in quotes, pathetic irony that Trump would hold a rally for union members at a non-union business. See, it is pathetic irony, but it is so Trump. It is so Trump. And the article also notes that the place Trump spoke at was Drake Enterprises, Which is an auto parts supplier. According to the Michigan AFL CIO, which encompasses several different union groups, Drake Enterprises is a non union manufacturer and supplier. So I can't say I'm surprised, but there are just so many contradictions, and this is just such a glaring contradiction of Trump. But look, like it or not, this doesn't actually surprise me at all because while the MAGA base, Could be seen as pro union, and I think a small majority of union workers do support Trump as president. We have to remember that the donor class of the Republican Party is not pro labor unions, and many states that Trump will need to carry are right to work states. So he can't just go out there supporting unions in a full manner when he needs to appeal to right to work states, especially in the South, and actually just kind of all over the country. For example, You know, Florida's a right-to-work state, Wisconsin, South Dakota, Idaho, Alabama, Indiana, North Dakota, Kentucky, Iowa, all right-to-work states, and there's more. I'm just listing some of them, but obviously there's a pretty big trend. These are all Republican states, except for, like, maybe Arizona, right? But the rest of these Republican states that Trump needs to win. So I simply don't think he can come out in full support of unions. Now, I should note, however that while union leaders like Sean Fain seem to be Democrat-leaning, even though he has called out Biden and said, just because you're supporting us now doesn't mean I'm going to endorse you. So he has said that. But at the same time, the leaders of of labor movements do seem to be Democrat-leaning. But Trump still has the not majority support, but he has a lot of support from actual union members. According to Axios, Trump secured 43% of the union vote in 2016, helping him tip states like Michigan. The article continues, Biden reclaimed some of the votes along the way to his 2020 vote. And obviously, both candidates went to Michigan to show how important those margins are. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of this goes. Before we move on, I want to talk about the other side of this entire Trump event rally. And it's the media coverage of it and the propaganda of it created by poor media coverage. So (laughs) this one's fun. First, I saw people at this Trump rally with pro-labor, pro-union signs, and I saw some interviews with others, and they discussed how Trump was fighting for labor movements and higher pay for the UAW, and (laughs) the fact that Trump was at a non-union factory, but the media and people there thought he would be at one and was at one mixed with supporters in the crowd with signs saying he was backing UAW labor felt just very Orwellian is not the right word. It felt very like alternative universe, almost North Korean in a sense of like propaganda. Like the leader is completely lying and projecting, but the media says he's doing something and people believe it. And the leader says he's doing something he's not. And people have to believe it. So it was also weird. Also weird. (laughs) Now, sticking on the media part for a moment, um, Adam Surer, who um, writes some pretty good articles for The Atlantic, has a piece on this entire fiasco and how the media kind of made this worse and about how Trump's kind of hollow right-wing faux populism doesn't actually serve helping people. It just, it's very empty inside and very false. And, uh, Sewer basically discusses how the media didn't cover this correctly off the bat, and then because Trump is a performer and he's good at changing narratives, he was able to kind of dance around this and change how people have perceived it. And before I get into some other points from Sewer's article, I think it's important just to give some examples of how the media covered Trump going to this. So the New York Times reported that Trump was set to woo striking union members never mentioned that he's going to a non-union place. The Wall Street Journal also left that out. Politico announced that Trump was going to, in quotes, address striking auto workers. Only at the very end of the story, though, did they mention that it was a non-union shop. So if you're one of the people that skims headlines or just follows stories but doesn't dig into them too closely, you could have come away from this thinking that... Trump was at a pro-union event, and he's fighting for UAW workers. And that really plays into Trump's favor, I think, which is, again, a disservice by the media in about every way possible. And Sewer argues that sometimes a narrative is just too good to fix after the fact, and this really helped Trump. I would go, I, I mean, I would just bet that there are people right now that will genuinely think that Trump supports unions, and they would say, no, but he was at that union event in Michigan speaking at it. And Biden might have been there too, but Trump was speaking and, you know, Biden and Trump cares about the workers, all this stuff. So very annoying, uh, very annoying. So Sewer writes in quotes here, over the, few, over the past few weeks, there have been whispers that President Trump would visit the striking UAW workers with fretting from Democrats in the press that Biden's overall pro-union record would be overshadowed by Trump on the picket line. Sewer then just talks about how, well, Biden was the only one that actually did this. And he writes, in quotes, this was a genuinely historic moment. FDR didn't do this. Biden did. But I think the piece does a really good job about explaining the reality of the situation. And that's just that it would not be as entertaining to talk about Biden The better story was the hyped-up situation about Trump, a candidate, trying to win over auto workers and union workers. Surer writes here in quotes, "...Trump didn't do that. In fact, Trump, who governed as a viciously anti-union president, even by Republican standards, chose to visit a non-union shop to give a campaign speech in which he said, I don't think you're picketing for the right reason, and told them it wouldn't make a damn bit of a difference." what they got in their contract because the growth in electric vehicle manufacturing would put them out of work. So he's just like, eh, what's the point of all this? Like, you're all screwed anyways. Like, nothing's coming back. The jobs are bad. Biden's bad. You know, just his typical rhetoric. And I think, I think this really is a good example of Trump's just emptiness in when he's using right-wing rhetoric and this just faux populism. He doesn't support the workers. It's just this, as uh, Surer writes, a cosplay populism of superficial working-class aesthetics that end up backing the bosses instead of the workers. Surer also writes, telling strikers that they should give up trying to get a better deal is not supporting workers or supporting unions. It's, his te- it's textbook union-busting rhetoric that anyone who ever has ever been in a union... Or tried to organize one would recognize. In other words, Trump did not go to Michigan to support striking workers at all. He did what cheap rich guys do every day. He told people who work for a living to be afraid of losing what little they have instead of trying to get what they deserve. Very, very well said, I think. And should any of us be surprised about this? Not one iota, in my opinion. Moving on though, I want to just briefly talk about the Biden side of this for a minute, because. Bidenomics, in my opinion, I'm talking about like Build Back Better, parts of the Green New Deal, kind of protectionism against Europe, China, a lot of our trading partners in, in regards to building up our electric vehicle manufacturing, etc. And I think Bidenomics might be in conflict with being pro-union. What I mean here is that the Green New Deal has been good for Biden for political reasons, and it's been a good it's been really successful at appeasing the i guess you could say the like environmental democratic elite voters but in a sense it kind of has caused some of these strikes or at least has been a part of why the UAW is striking and i think it could be hard for him to be pro union while also he's looking to get political wins with his different environmental policies and the economist has a good piece out today about this It writes here in quotes, Mr. Biden's policy is an answer to a political problem, how to pursue the green transition, which a key group of voters does not care much about and still get reelected. He squares the circle by wrapping up domestic manufacturing and greenery in a single package, supporting both with tariffs and subsidies. Alas, this policy is riven with contradictions. And guys, I fully agree with this. I think this is well said, and it's something that's not being talked about enough. And it's something that really has me thinking and somewhat confused for the last couple of weeks ever since this has been going on. We have to remember that one of the UAW's worries, for example, is that electric vehicles require few, fewer workers to build them, right? Less components means less people. And as we know, manufacturers, big companies, they like to cut costs. And so that probably does mean it's bad for the worker. I would argue that this is also because... The union itself is seeing its influence slip away because we have those non-union plants in the South, and we also have non-union battery factories as well. And The Economist writes here in quotes, For the car makers pivoting from gas guzzlers to volt vehicles, as the federal and some state governments want them to do, will require a lot of capital. A generous settlement with the UAW could make this harder, slower, and worse down the road. And I think in a general sense, Biden's own policy is undermining what he's trying to do. And there's just all these contradictions that could either backfire or just confuse people. And again, I think these, these organizations are making record profits. And so workers should be paid better, full stop. I also have never bought into the idea that, say, these jobs just go to Mexico if these people keep striking. Because I think a good president would just say, well, then we're going to slap even more tariffs on these vehicles, make it not worth your while to do so. I think there's ways around that. Anyways, the I'll wrap up the whole union segment here, but The Economist has a good ending to this article. It says here in quotes, if the unions and car makers reach a deal in a few weeks time, Mr. Biden will come out of the clash looking stronger. But if it drags on, the Midwest economy suffers and Americans cannot get new parts for their cars. He may yet come to regret his claim to be the most union, pro-union president in American history. Interesting. It's too early to tell, but I can see how this could backfire if it drags on for a long time. We'll see. Anyways, the last thing I want to talk about is Diane Feinstein. I've talked about her for quite some time now because she's had health issues that have... I mean, she's had health... health <laughs> I can't speak health issues that have ranged from hospitalizations, from shingles to encephalitis, bad falls, the potential of dementia. She's been busy, and it's become a huge distraction and just time-consuming endeavor. A lot of people have wanted her to resign for a while, but she's kind of become embattled. She obviously had a lot of lapses in memory. There were reports that just her staff were pretty much doing everything for her, I've done other episodes on it. I'm not going to stay on this for too long, but either way, it's, it's been a mess. And sadly, uh, she did pass away. So The Economist writes here, Diane Feinstein, America's longest serving female senator, died aged 90. The Democrat from California spent three decades in the upper chamber where she led efforts to ban assault weapons and investigate the CIA's torture programs. Previously, she had a long career in San Francisco where she was mayor. Her health had declined in recent years, leading many to question her fitness for office. I should also note that Gavin Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom, is going to to appoint her replacement. I hope it is not Adam Schiff. I really do. But I'm worried it's going to be. We will cover that as things change. Now, I understand this is, you know, it's a tough subject, sensitive subject. I'm sorry for her family. Maybe it's too early to criticize her at all, but I think, I think there's interesting topics to be had as this is kind of a lesson in a lot of ways. There is something to me that's even more tragic, though, than just the death. I want to know why her friends and family, staff and aides, and even people like Nancy Pelosi, that I guess is close to her and's kind of helped work with her daughter to keep her going, <laughs> I'm confused why they didn't try to get her to resign, so she could enjoy her final months. I just don't know what the hell they were doing and why her staff was not speaking out or expressing threats. They were basically just rolling her around in her wheelchair and protecting her from the public, knowing that she was really at the end and in decline. And it's not good in a democracy. And it's also sad uh, for her. Like I don't think it was right for her family not to step up and say, like she doesn't have the capacity to do this. And anyways, I will save my more critical stuff since this is all new and fresh, but I just question why people let her stay in office for so long. That's pretty troubling to me. Anyways, Mark Leibovich, Atlantic writer, I think he's a staff writer, um, writes some great profiles in The Atlantic, and he has a pretty interesting piece that I think is a good testament to what happens when you hold on to office for too long. And the article discusses one lesson of Dianne Feinstein's career, is that if you stay in your job too long, you will risk losing control of how it ends. You will risk losing control of the finale. And I think that's extremely well put. Also, it starts by Leibovitch kind of reflecting on whether he should even write this piece right now. He notes some other things I've talked about. He discusses her successes, obviously, like how she set, yeah, she stepped in as mayor of San Francisco after her predecessor was assassinated. She was a big proponent of gun safety, longest serving woman in the Senate. As chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, she was really involved at looking at some of these CIA black sites where they were violating human rights, torturing people in secret prisons. She's been highly involved and not my favorite senator by any means, but I think she did a lot of good things and you can't deny the historic nature of her career. So, Leibovich gets into all of that. But then <laughs> he questions, is it too early to put this piece out? He he even writes, yeah, probably, but he does anyways. And he notes she should be respected, but then he gets into the stuff about how her hospitalizations, medical bills, lawsuits over her late husband's estate just made her time a distraction and she was barely there. She got feisty with people when people actually challenged her on her health, memory, if she was even able to do the functions of her position. And Leibovitch writes here that this made her a big distraction and she became the latest exemplar of a basic egalitarian principle in lawmaking. Even the most legendary figures ultimately amount to a vote. Often your most important job is simply to be available, show up, and be counted. And basically, I think what he's getting at is that she, I mean, as she became kind of a hurdle for nominating Biden appointee, or I mean, sorry, um, yeah, approving nominees from the Biden administration, judicial decisions, when she wasn't there, she held up important votes and she became less known for the importance of her legacy and more known as someone that kind of was an issue sometimes and was never there and just needed to go. And so people were trying to force her out, not her staff or her family, but People were trying to force her out in there, or at least question her, and it became more about, okay, who can Gavin Newsom appoint if you resign? When are you going to resign? That's the narrative. You can't do the vote. You're not always there. We need you gone. And basically, it went from, how's she going to vote, or what does she think about this issue, to just hushed questions about how long she was going to hang on, how long she was going to remain before she resigns, and... I, I think just too many, too many elected officials hold on to power, they cling to power, and in, instead they should go away gracefully more often. Because when you do that, you can be the one who writes your final chapters as a career elected official and not have it written for you. And I think that's why Romney obviously resigning, or, or saying he's not going to seek re-election a couple weeks ago, was a good telling of that. He is setting his own narrative. He determined his finale. In this case, unfortunately, Feinstein's final chapters tough and hard to watch. And again, I don't think that should take away from the good things she's done, like I mentioned earlier. But I think it's a testament to other senators, other congresspeople that you should really try to understand when your time comes so that you can be in the driving seat of how your final chapters are done. So anyways, that'll do it for us today. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Again, enjoy the rest of your Friday. Enjoy your weekend. We'll be back.